melody Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today you're listening to this. It's the 5th of February, 2010. This is episode 372 of the Survival Podcast. And today we're going to be talking about community-supported agriculture. Now, I'm actually recording this show yesterday, if you're listening to it on the day it was published, because uh, my wife's having a little dental procedure done today with a bone graft, and she's going to need somebody to drive her there and drive her home. Uh, So I pre-recorded this show, so you guys do not go without a show. I really try to maintain that no matter what goes on. You know, I don't have somebody coming and pinch hit and guest host for me, though. That Who knows? Someday in the future, this might grow into uh, a multi-show format and maybe even do some streaming stuff in the future. Uh, and maybe that'll, maybe that'll happen someday. But as for now, I'm the, only, uh, I'm the only one here doing the Survival Podcast, so I never leave you without a show. Uh, that's what we did today. Just wanted you to know that because I want you to realize how important it is to me that there is a show every day for you guys. Um... Before we uh, get into today's topic, community-supported agriculture, and, and hang with me if you've heard of it before and think, oh, this is not for me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break it down, uh, as I usually do when I talk about a topic that maybe you've heard of before, and tell you how it applies to you as a prepper and a modern survivalist uh, in, in a different way than maybe it applies to the, uh, I don't know, the granola-eating hippie that just wants to do it because it's the right thing to do. And not to put him down or anything, just we have different ways of looking at things as different groups of people. And our primary consideration here at the Survival Podcast is self-sufficiency, sustainability, and preparation. So I will try to bring CSA into that world for you and show you why it's one of the best things you can do, even from a self-serving standpoint and definitely from a community-building standpoint. Before we do that, though, let's talk about our sponsors. Uh, sponsor of the day number one, Sawtooth Tactical. Really cool stuff. And I want to tell you guys, I, I just read a, fo- a thread in their board on the forum. Remember, a lot of our sponsors now have their own board at TSP uh, on our forum, and you can go there and, and check them out. And I've just read a bunch of people that ordered from Sawtack and how happy they are and most of them ended up with some free goodies um, I didn't get any free goodies when I ordered maybe you guys are more you know, I, don't, I don't know man uh, but apparently they've been giving some stuff out but uh but Rob over there says he's running out of stuff, so if you want some free goodies from an order from Sawtooth, uh, uh, they may go away, so you might want to order sometime soon. But what I, what I was struck by is how well everybody was taken care of, and that means they're the kind of sponsor I want to have. And the same I can say for Tea Party Silver, who's our other uh, sponsor of the day today. Um, everybody I know that's spoken to Mary Beth Maidmont over there, either on the phone uh, or a couple people in person or by email has given me the same response. She is wonderful. And I'll tell you what, I feel the same way. I've spent probably more money with Tea Party Silver than I have with any of my other sponsors because I love silver, and I'm going to buy some every month anyway. Um, and I've been you know, purchasing most of my new silver from them. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you what, I've never been let down with service, delivery, or any component of the entire process. So I cannot recommend them highly enough either. 
So the next thing I want to remind you is to connect to us with all our social media options. We have a Facebook fan page. You can even connect directly with me as a friend on Facebook. Do that. Uh, if you're a Twitter user, sign up to, as a follower for us on Twitter. And on YouTube, hey, subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's a big one for me. I've been doing a lot of things with that. I didn't get to add any more videos this week. Uh, but I'll try to get some done this weekend. It's Super Bowl weekend. My wife's going to be recovering from that little bit of surgery, so it probably won't happen. But we're we're ready to move on to the next phase of the long-term storage bucket project. I've got one of the fire pistons uh, from Wilderness Solutions that I'm going to be doing a review on. So I've got some really great stuff coming up with YouTube, so make sure you subscribe there. I want to remind you once again, I will be at the AG Trading Center. The AG is in the Civil for Silver. AG Trading Center in Farmer's Branch. Uh, on the 17th of February, you can go to the website for more details on that. If you want to attend, they're only taking payments for the event in silver, uh, and you can learn about the conversion of the currency there. Uh, I'll try to get a little bit more specific with that for you uh, on Monday's show. But if you're in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area and you'd like to come check out the AG Trading Center and spend an hour and a half with me doing a workshop on developing modern survival philosophy, Show up, and we'll have a great time together. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You join the Member Support Brigade, you get exclusive content available only to members. And um, when you join the Member Support Brigade, uh, you help support the show at uh, 20 cents an episode. That comes out to $5 a month or $50 a year. But you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to run an impromptu contest. Here's what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to give out a coupon code right now. It'll only work for the first five people that try it, um, and once five people try it, it goes away. But what this coupon code will do is let you join the MSB for $30 for your first year, so $20 off your first year of membership. Uh, there's only five of them. You don't send me an email today. You just go try to sign up and use the coupon code. Um, if you're listening to this a day later, don't bother, okay? It's, it's, it's only going to last for 24 hours anyway, and five people will probably go fast. But the coupon code to use when you're signing up to get a discount and be one of the first five people and win today's contest is F36F. F36F. That would be Foxtrot 36 Foxtrot. Um, you need to make sure that the uh, letters are capital. So capital F36F. Uh, capital F. Um, if you try to use that coupon code and it doesn't work, that means that someone's already uh, claimed your spot. And So there you go. It's a weird way to do things, but I have this new system that lets me do stuff like that. Thought it would be cool. 30 bucks for your first year of the MSB. If you've been sitting on the fence and you're one of the first five people to use that coupon code, there you go. I've set it to expire uh, after 24 hours. Uh, so uh, if you're listening to this on Saturday or Sunday, it won't matter anyway. But if you're listening to this on Friday, you've been on the fence with it, there you go, 20 bucks off. There's our contest. Let's get into the main topic of today's show, which is community-supported agriculture. Um, I think the first thing I really need to do for you guys, because not everybody would know this, obviously, is what is community-supported agriculture and how does it work? Let's answer that first. Well, I mean, it, it kind of says what it is on the surface. At least it's, it's pretty easy to understand, and that is that it is a, a system of agriculture that is supported by the local community around it. So the consumers themselves are supporting the local farm. So instead of farmer Tom harvesting all his crops, taking them down to kind of a central resale facility, selling them into a wholesale environment, where that wholesaler then distributes them uh, to another part of the country or maybe even another part of the world, 
The consumer goes down to Farmer Tom's farm and purchases directly from Farmer Tom. Um, this is an arrangement that doesn't happen that much anymore. But how is it different from, let's say, a farmer's market or a roadside produce stand? Let's say Farmer Tom sets up a little roadside stand and sells food directly to people in the, in the local economy right off his farm, but it's kind of a come in and I, I want some of those and some of those and some of that and here's some money and I'll leave uh, versus a true CSA. Well, a CSA is a totally different model. It's a very unique model and it's something that I really, the first time I heard it, I didn't get how powerful it was and, and after the second or third time I thought about it and I read about it and I've read about it mostly in Mother Earth News I finally got it and said, wow, this is really revolutionary, and it's really simple. And the way it works is, Farmer Tom says, I have 30 shares available in my coming crop this summer. And I'll be harvesting from, let's say, various things from May through October. And I expect to get, you know, X number of harvests out of that. Once it starts, you can show up every other week, and then in the peak of the season every week, and toward the end every other week again. And every time you show up, you'll get an equal share of whatever is available. And to buy a share is 600 bucks, or 300 bucks, or $1,000, depending on how big an operation it is, and how many times it's being cut up, and how many shares. The difference is you pay, not as you go, but you pay in advance. So let's say the cutoff date to buy a share this season is March 15th. And everybody has to buy their share then. What does this do? One, it makes the farmer's success important to you. You become a risk sharer in the harvest. So if he has kind of an off year, you get a little bit less, which means you've paid a little bit more. But on the other side, if he has, if he has a banner year, Right, a great year, you get more and you've paid less per unit. But it gives the farmer also an awful lot of flexibility because the biggest expense that a farmer incurs is in the beginning of the year with purchasing seeds and plants and, and fertilizers and, and, and having work done to, to prepare the fields and things like that. So the CSA makes us equal to the people who are feeding us, rather than make us superior to them. And I think the people that feed you should deserve kind of an equality. And that equality comes from a financial stake. Now you think about that as we go through today. And I started with that because it's the one thing that makes people go, I don't know about this. I'm going to give this guy 600 bucks, and his crop could completely fail this year, and I could be totally out. Not likely, but yeah, it could happen. But by the time we get to the end today, you'll see why that changes everything about the way that the corporate powers that be are running the planet today, specifically with their stranglehold on food. So the next thing I want to talk to you, though, is RCSAs, Community Supported Agricultural Pro uh, Programs, limited to fruits and vegetables. I think whenever somebody actually has like a limited understanding of a CSA, they immediately say, well, that must be what it's fruits and vegetables. Well, really not. There's dairies that operate as CSAs. So they have a herd of goats, and they make cheese. And uh, the goats give milk during certain times of the year, and certain times of the year they, they have to be allowed to raise their, their kids and, and stuff like that. 
but they have a, a planned production schedule. In advance of that production schedule, you purchase a share, and you get seed uh, as, the, as the process moves forward. So just the important takeaway there is it doesn't have to be limited to things that grow out of the ground, which we'll talk about more as we go through today. But I, I want you to understand that there are, there are CSAs that deal in, 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 in milk and other dairy products and, and a variety of other things as well. And really, if you think about it, the concept could be used in anything that has kind of a production timeline schedule. It's really kind of an advanced ordering is all that it is. And it's also an advanced ordering for something that generally people would not want to buy in bulk in one sitting. Unless you're really into dehydrating and canning and all the other great stuff that's out there for food preservation, it's highly unlikely that you would want to buy an entire share in a CSA at one sitting. But for the average person that maybe even is not into food storage, it's a way to eat very, very fresh vegetables directly from the grower throughout a major portion of the year and maybe save some of it and maybe even end up with some surplus that's given away or donated or used in some other fashion. But it doesn't have to just be limited um, to things like fruits and vegetables. So kind of open your horizons, especially if you think about maybe taking another side of this, which I'm going to talk about today too, is not just being a supporter of CSA, but maybe using CSA as your own business model. I think that one of the things that we really need to look at, though, before we move on, is combining the CSA with modern survival philosophy, specifically the first tenet. And as I've said over and over and over again, since almost day one of this show, if you're going to practice modern survivalism, the first rule that you have to follow is that everything you do should make your life better off even if nothing ever goes wrong. In other words, live the life you want today so that you can continue to live that way if times get tough or even if they don't. And the reason I've always had that is because people are very self-serving creatures. If we don't see the benefit in something, and specifically if we don't see a benefit in something that requires sacrifice or effort relatively soon, we generally stop doing it. Right, so people that exercise and don't lose some weight generally stop exercising. They lose a little bit of weight, they start to feel better and look good, they generally keep exercising and over time it becomes a major component of their day. But if they don't get past that first hump, if all they feel is sore and tired and deprived, and they don't see any results, they generally kind of fall off the wagon. Well, it's the same thing with modern survivalism. That's why I came up with that anchoring concept for everything we talk about here. Well, how does that kind of justify against the community-supported agricultural program. As a buyer, as someone that is a supporter, this is what it does for you. It puts you in touch with a local grower, and it gives you a stronger sense of your own individual community. It provides you with the freshest local foods that you can get your hands on. It provides you with variety. It breaks up your uh, myopic view of you know, vegetables come from the grocery store. If you have children, it ties them into a sense of community. It helps them see where food really comes from. I could go on and on and on about how it helps you if nothing ever goes wrong. What about when times do get tough? Well, one of the biggest shortages that we're going to face in our future is that of food. The people that know how to grow and produce food in your local community will become the most valuable assets there are to know if we end up in that scenario.
Do you think Farmer Tom is going to be more likely to have a close, tight-knit relationship with one of his customers who's been working with him for years and helped him grow and establish his business or some guy off the street that just wants something? To me, it is a perfect example of how something that actually seems to be most beneficial without a disaster is really most beneficial or very beneficial when there is a disaster. I also want you to think about this. What we talk about here often is not just what do we do if we end up in a disaster, but how can we take actions as a community as a whole to prevent disasters or to mitigate the consequences when they do occur outside of our control. If food shortages are a problem, and they are, and if they're going to become more of a problem, and they will, and if peak oil is going to affect this due to how much fuel and petroleum that large farms and transportation and all uh, consumes, and it is, then is the solution not local growers who do things in smaller scale with high efficiencies, selling it to local communities that do not require transportation, and having more farmers today than we currently have? The more farmers we can create that are able to grow organically and sustainably, in our local communities, the less dependence we have on foreign sources of food. The less dependence we have on domestic sources of food that are far away. Let's say I'm in Texas from California or Oregon or New York. Not that there's anything wrong with those places. I would just as like to see more farmers in New York selling to people in New York, more farmers in Texas selling to people in Texas. And yes, there's some interstate commerce. That's part of why we have a federal republic in the first place. But it should be for the things we can't produce for ourselves. Certain things will grow much better in a northern climate like New York or a, a, a climate like California than they will in Texas. Those are the things we should be exchanging. There's things I can grow here in Texas that you're going to have a lot of difficulty with up in upstate New York. You know, I mean, and that concept is so important. So we start to grasp that. But the solution is being able to grow the staples of our diet locally. And to do that, we need farmers. Now, farming is a scary-ass business to go into, folks. I want you to think about this. If I just gave you 40 acres of land and a little farmhouse, and it was paid for, but that was all you had, and you had to look at how to plant it, how to get your supplies, how to go through a learning curve and fail, how to get some livestock involved in the equation, how to hire. I mean, there is, it is one of the easiest businesses on the planet to lose your shirt in today. That's why farms have been gobbled up and gobbled up into bigger and bigger and bigger mega farm conglomerates that are run almost 100% mechanized, that destroy the soil, that turn our prairies into desert, that salt the planet, because the guy that has 10 acres and wants to be a little market grower finds it almost impossible to compete in the mass food production scale when he tries to take his goods and sell them into that distribution system. Well, this circumvents that with more assurances than a roadside stand does. Because what happens is the farmer during his downtime, the winter, the late fall, the early spring, when he's not working 12 hours a day during a harvest peak, when the food's there, when the food's not there, he has time to go out and secure customers and to market his business. It turns everything upside down on its head. Then I think what we need to really do in this country is we need to start getting innovative with our CSAs and go beyond the local farm. Because most CSAs today are between 10 and 40 acre farms that are run like little miniature big farms. 
except they grow a lot more variety. But they got rows of tomatoes, rows of cucumbers. I mean, they look like a big farm in miniature. They use the same techniques. Some of them are organic. Some of them are maybe not 100% organic, but they're better than the, than the other, you know, the large-scale mass-produced stuff. A lot of them make sure that they stay away from GMOs, you know, genetically modified foods. But pretty much most farms are just that, little farms. Nothing wrong with that. If you have one, good for you. I hope you do wonderful with it. But not everybody can do that. You look at the investment, the amount of land that's necessary, the amount of equipment that's necessary. But what if we can start to produce CSAs in different models? See, one of the most powerful things that the human mind has the capability to do but seldom succeeds in doing is the, com the combining of similar ideas to make a stronger idea. So what if we take a concept like permaculture? And I'm not just talking about sustainably growing annual vegetables, right, or just having an orchard. I'm talking about what if we took 10 or 20 acres of land and truly permacultured it out, maxed it out, food, forest, nut trees, what have you. And what if the guy putting that together would go into a long-term agreement with the initial shareholders and said, look, I'll get this thing up and running. I'll get berries and annual vegetables and stuff like that churning out a year. I'll get lots of that churning out in three years. But it's going to be five to ten years before we have this massive undertaking. But I need involvement now. You'd have to have someone that's very trustworthy. Maybe that person would have to get those berries and annuals and things and take ten, ten acres of his property. Maybe he has to use the proceeds from that to start building out another ten. But sooner or later, we could end up with people that instead of having a 40-acre micro farm, right, with a 40-acre food forest that people own a share in. Completely and totally sustainable. Interesting concept, isn't it? What if we do more than that, though? What if we really start to push the model? What if I said, I could tell you how to run a CSA in a typical suburban lot? If you have good solar exposure, no matter what part of the country that you're in, you could do it. Let's look at doing it with a greenhouse. Now, your little 8x10 um, pop-up greenhouse is not going to work for this. But consider the difference in the investment. Buying a you know, ten, even 10-acre ten farm and having farmland and having to depend 100% on farmland. Or going out and hiring the help or building yourself. A large greenhouse, I mean a fairly substantial greenhouse, let's say 20 feet by 40 feet. But that's something that would fit in most backyards. And within that greenhouse, growing a variety of fruits and vegetables, extending your growing season throughout the year, you're dealing with pests less, right? You have complete control. You have the ability to grow specific varieties of vegetables. Be very careful with your cross-pollination then so that you're providing 100% of your own seeds. With the waste from all that production, you're going to be able to make more compost than you could ever use because you use less in a greenhouse because you're growing in containers with, with better uh, conditions. Even growing through the summer, you're able to do things to actually reduce temperatures uh, with some net shading and things like that, reduce insect damage. And it's very possible that a person could set up a little greenhouse operation like that, and I don't know, have 20 people that pay them $50 a month for food, 
That's 500 bucks. It's a nice little bit of pocket change. But if you could really ramp that up, and I think in that size of production, you might be able to turn out a situation where you've got people paying you $100 a month. You know, and if you've got 20 of those, you're looking at $2,000. It's 24000 a year. There's people that don't make $24,000 a year. And the next thing I'm going to say, you have to take it however you want to, but a lot of that money would be in just plain old cash. So you figure out what to do with that information. But you wouldn't have to quit your job. Now, if we did something like put a nice little chicken house in with that and put a place in the greenhouse where the chickens could get in to help provide warmth and CO2 for the plants and had the chickens producing eggs, we could add egg production to our shares. We could also have our own fertilizer, and we start to create an entire self-sufficient system. I think this is hard for people to get their heads around because generally they're thinking, I can't produce enough food for me. Well, how can I produce enough food to bring customers in? Well, the thing is you can produce an abundant surplus of certain foods. The word gets to where it's hard to produce enough food to 100% feed yourself is the variety that we as humans want. You know, steak. You know, certain vegetables that won't grow in your area, certain fruits that won't grow in your area. But I'm telling you, with a big greenhouse, not a massive greenhouse, not all these giant tunnels, but a big, well-run greenhouse, having a CSA with maybe 20 customers doesn't sound that out of the question. And it's a very modular approach. So if you did that successfully, and you decided you wanted to double your business, as long as the people were out there to sell to, all you have to do is build a second one exactly the same way you built the first one. And that modular concept brings me into what I think might be the most underutilized and probably most potentially successful CSA model you could ever do, aquaponics. Imagine taking that greenhouse and turning that greenhouse into an aquaponics operation where you're producing tilapia and food, and if you brought that chicken, the chickens into it, eggs. So now you have a CSA where a person can come in for whatever the share price is you're going to sell at. And at certain times of the year, they get fillet, you know, fish. You can either do it whole or do it filleted, maybe charge something to do the filleting. Um, the vegetables, fruits, chicken eggs. There's an immense opportunity if people will just see it and capture it and start to understand that you don't need 40 acres to do this. Think about the Dervaises. The Dervaises take and they truck their food out to all those little delicatessens and, and, and restaurants in the area. They get, you know, about $20,000 a year off it. I bet you they could make more money if they ran a CSA. I bet you they, they wouldn't even have to leave. They'd have just people showing up for their baskets of stuff. And I bet you they could make double if they were running their operation as a CSA. I never really thought about that before. Because when you look at what they're doing, it's so amazing what they've been able to do that you think, well, how could I improve this? Well, the production, I'm going to leave that to them. They're the experts in it. Somebody who produces three tons of food on a tenth of an acre, they got it going on. But what you can improve from a business is the cash flow. It'd be very interesting. What if they only sold ten shares of it? So that they, they, they dealt out a certain number of their, a certain percentage of their surplus. They didn't give up their other customers. Or if they got one customer that's a pain in the ass, they replace him with ten little customers. Mitigate your risk. See, that's another thing. As a farmer, if I'm growing food and something happens that tanks the commodity I grow overnight, the wholesaler, I have to sell to him. I have a, a, a crop that's going to go bad. I've got to dump it while the harvest is high. 
Well, he might be able to get it into a system, hold on to it a little bit, and that's where he makes his money when the market recovers. And those things just seem to happen to farmers all the time. Food prices go up and the farmer makes less money. See, this takes that away. See, I'm hoping what you're seeing today is the advantages of this on both ends. As a consumer, I know exactly who, what I'm getting, exactly where I'm getting it from, and exactly what went into it, and I can press palms with the guy that actually grow, grows my food. As a farmer, I'm removing a major portion of the market risk, and I also get to press palms with the person that I'm doing business with. And as I look at aquaponics for doing this, I think it's the way forward. I think it's the most highly productive system you can come up with. And the modularity is extreme. It would be very reasonable for if you went into that business to set up a greenhouse-based aquaponics system with fish and plants and everything going on, sell out all the shares that that thing can produce with a very low risk. Maybe you're only taking 10 customers. I don't know. And then you find out, I've charged a little bit too, I've tar charged too little. So when I go to expand, I know to charge more. Or I actually can do this so efficiently, I was charging more than I needed to, and now I can market more efficiently. But you know exactly what the cost, the timeline, the development, everything is. Because you start out with one, and you just replicate it over and over and over again. And again, like we were talking about with the greenhouse. If you take that aquaponics system and do things like bring chickens into the equation, think about what you've got going on there. And then if we do things like grow a little bit of stuff for the chickens to eat, grow some duckweed for the tilapia to eat, and set up you know, a system to harvest and, and, and uh, grow black soldier flies, I've got a protein source to, to, to feed to both the chickens and the fish. I end up with a very, very low cost of production. And now I end up starting to produce tilapia at a dollar a pound. And instead of having tilapia I can't afford to sell to the wholesale system, I can go out and sell the tilapia for the same $5 a pound that the store's selling it from. But if I want to go this far, when the guy comes in to get his two, two or three uh, tilapia worth of fillets in, I can say, okay, hold on, let me get your fish out. I can net them right in front of the guy, fillet them right there, and I've got the remains of that fish that can be used to produce what? A fertilizer. See, I think that if we start taking things like greenhouse growing, aquaponics and permaculture, and we start to integrate that with the CSA model, that's our step toward food freedom. And that wouldn't mean that, you know, I'm going to tell you, well, if you're involved in the CSA, don't grow your own food anymore. Of course grow your own food. But grow the things that your CSA or grower doesn't provide for you. The things that you would prefer to grow for yourself. Or focus on perennial production in trees and bushes and vines and things like that. There's so much potential here. We really need to begin exploring it. We need to be creative with it. I think it's also important to understand why buying local matters in the first place. Most of the problems that you're going to deal with are going to occur at your personal, uh, local, or regional level. The more stable your region is, the better off you're going to be through good times and bad. That's just a fact. I mean... It sucks in Haiti right now. We all understand that. Two million people without homes. Completely overwhelmed. But it's as bad as it is in Haiti right now because it wasn't very good to begin with. I'm not saying that if we had a city of two million rocked with an earthquake in the United States that we wouldn't deal with horrific consequences ourselves. 
But the place was never that stable to begin with. And that's part of why the disaster has had the unbelievable ramifications that it has. I've talked to people that have been there, some of our listeners who have been there, and they've told me, they've been to war-torn areas. They've never seen anything that matches the carnage of Port-au-Prince Haiti right now. That has to do with its instability before the disaster. The more stable you make, you cannot prevent disasters. You can prevent some of them, but you certainly can't prevent the occurrence of all disasters. Ice storms happen. No matter what the, the, the climate change freaks tell us, we're not going to stop ice storms, we're not going to stop droughts, we're not going to stop hurricanes, we're not going to stop tornadoes. They're going to happen. But the more stable your local economy is, the better off you are. Nothing's more important to your local region than its ability to feed itself. If you can feed, clothe, house, water yourself, shelter yourself, you'll deal with everything else. Those are essentials. Those are the things you have to have. And it really starts with food. So make sure you get that it's more than just about, you know, how cool this stuff is. That it really is self-serving in a way to have a stable local community. The next thing is, I want to talk to you about what I'm calling the new lie. It's been roughly the last year where this full court press is starting to come. I'm hearing it over and over and over again from major media sources all over the place. And they just throw it in little chip shots here and little chip shots there. And here's the story. It's really in direct conflict with the local food movement. And what they're saying is a lot of people are buying local because they think they're helping the environment. And they think that by buying local food, we don't have to spend all the gas and jet fuel and everything to transport that food from halfway around the world. But because modern agriculture is so much more efficient that they produce so much more in these other locations, that the current method of growing food 3,000 miles away and bringing it to your front door is more efficient and actually produces less pollution than buying local food. You know what I call that? A big, steaming load of absolute bullshit. And then I, I read into it, I see things like, well, they said, you know, this certain area in California produced seven times the strawberries than an area in Toronto. Fine. But that's what I was talking about. There's certain things that grow really well in certain areas, and when a community has a desire for those, interstate exchange makes sense. But that doesn't mean there's not tremendous amounts of food that can be lo grown locally in Toronto. And that the people that choose to eat mostly locally grown food, gee whiz, are going to eat mostly foods that grow well in Toronto. And you can still grow some strawberries in Toronto. Maybe different varieties of strawberries. Here's the other side of that. Everybody that's growing food today is growing it for it to be transported. Well, in our geniusness as human beings, we've developed certain strains of strawberries that transport well. They stay hard longer. They can be picked before they're fully ripe, and they continue to ripen. They're great if you want to put them in a crate and ship them somewhere. But if I'm selling from a CSA, and I'm going to give you that strawberry today, you're going to take it home and eat it tomorrow, I don't need that. And now I can grow the variety of strawberry or blackberry or whatever that's best for my region and for your consumer taste rather than what's going to hold up best in the back of a boxcar for seven days going across the country, which is what people grow today. 
That is a lie. And every time you hear it, you need to call the person on it. And you need to ask them how they can honestly look you straight in the face and tell you that a little bag of lettuce grown in the Andes Mountains in Argentina, put on an airplane, flown through the air, goes through immigration and customs services to a warehouse, gets purchased in a warehouse and parceled out to a major distribution retailer, then transported to their central warehouse, and then transported to a local destination, then goes to the grocery store and gets stocked. The guy that works at the grocery store has to drive there. You drive to the grocery store, pick it up, drive it home. How that could ever be, ever be, is pollution-free, is it efficient, and is good for your local economy, is driving two blocks down the road and picking up a basket that was grown by somebody that lives right where you do. That is the most nonsensical pile of crap I have ever heard in my life. Don't you believe that lie? Now, here's the big thing. Why the heck are they doing that? Why is that lie showing up? Remember what I've told you about how they've attacked Growing your own garden is being inconsequential. Remember when I said, when they started attacking people like Ron Paul and calling them crazy. Whenever you're doing anything that starts out small, and no one talks about it or dismisses you, and then along the journey, they start taking shots at you, you know what it means? You're having an effect. That's why they're doing it, because they don't like it. Because it threatens the powers that be. The one thing they really have this planet by the cojones with right now is food. All over the world. In the third world nations where there's still farmers left as a major portion of the economy, they've, they've put them into such debt that the agricultural land is seized, and it grows one of the fig, big four grains, and 90% of the crop is exported so that we can be here and be net importers of food. In nations like ours, they've so degenerated farming it's almost impossible to make a profit at, and all of a sudden this little local food movement comes in, and a bunch of hippies are eating some tofu from some locally grown soybeans, and nobody cares. But over a decade, it starts to really gain some momentum, and all of a sudden people stop going to the grocery store and start dealing with Farmer Tom. All of a sudden people start asking questions. Do you have any locally grown produce? And just like the pilots in World War II says, when you're over the target, you'll start getting shot at. When you start getting shot at, drop the bombs because you know you're where you need to be. They won't shoot at you when you're over the countryside and you're not impacting anything. But as soon as you start to threaten them, they'll start to shoot at you. That's what you're seeing here. And I know you might be thinking, is this, is this guy stretching us a bit? No! No, think about the lie that I just told you, and I'll tell you what, if you go online, you can find all kinds of articles talking about how it's not as efficient, and people that are locavores and think they're helping, they're really hurting, and, you know, how much more, you'll find it all over the place now. All kinds of articles about food. All kinds of articles about global warming. Do you see what they've done? They rubbed the lamp and a genie came out. They don't like the genie now. They told all these people that global warming was going to kill us, the polar bears are going to drown, oh my God, you've got to take care of the environment, and a certain segment of the people that believe that lie said, well, we've got to do something about this, we've got to reduce our carbon footprint. And all the Al Gores of the world said, yes, reduce your carbon footprint, buy my carbon offsets. And they went, no, no, I'm going to buy from a local grower so I stop having this stuff travel around in an airplane. What? I don't like that, right? 
That, that was not the intended response. See, that's what I keep telling you folks. This is why I don't believe in the massive conspiracy theory stuff at the top. I believe there's people that manipulate this planet and manipulate the world's currencies and the world's economies and the world's nations and the world's people through lies and propaganda. But in the end, people are still people and they still have free will. And it's not as easy as turning in a dial. And when you spread a lie, even a lie that's going to result in some positive results, sometimes the positive results are not the ones you intended. And thousands, if not millions of people starting to say, I'm going to eat locally. I'm going to act locally. That doesn't fit well with the globalist agenda. And I'm telling you right now, these people are like, holy crap, we don't want that to happen. That's what's happened. That's what's happened. And then this is the thing that really scares them. People like you and me that don't buy into all their environmental alarmism, that think we have real problems with our environment, but cap and trade isn't going to solve it. Yes, I want a more fuel-efficient vehicle, but no, I'm not warming up the planet. We're more worried about the actual pollutants. We're more worried about the earth being salted. We go right into that group and we ally with them, even though they are, you know, thinking for a different motivation than we are. We go, yeah, you know what you're doing makes sense. I don't care if we don't agree on everything. Buy a local food. Yeah, we'll do that too. And all of a sudden you got hippies and rednecks hanging out at farmer's markets together. Whoops. Whoops. Well, we, we really didn't want that. Because they don't want you to do They want division. And that's what this local food thing has done. And that's not just CSAs. That is the farmer's markets. That is the roadside stands. That's the very concept of walking up to your produce manager at a major chain and go, do you guys have any local produce? All of that has put the bomber over the target, and now they're shooting at us. And saying, no, 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 that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Because the real agenda there is globalism, not localism. So they got to shoot at it. But nobody with common sense would ever believe that lie. Don't believe that lie when you read that. And I'm going to tell you, the worst offenders are going to be conservative right-wing talk show hosts. They're going to pick this thing up, and they're going to run with it. They're going to say, look, global warming alarmist. Well, and that's... The manipulator is going to use that. This is a chess game, not a checkers game. Nothing is ever about one move. You need to remember that. You know, I think the other thing we have to realize here when we talk about CSAs and all local growing is what is self-sufficiency really all about? We talk about self-sufficiency all the time, but I'm telling you right now, being completely self-sufficient in and of it yourself just you and your family on some little 80 acres in the middle of the mountains somewhere. Even if you can do it, it's not a very fulfilling and rewarding life to be 100% self-sufficient to the point where you don't interact with anybody else. You're not involved with anybody else. And it's actually very, very difficult to do. We plan for disasters. Well, the problem is when you get into that self-sufficient lifestyle, you get into all these systems that you develop for yourself that are supporting you. And that's better than being in the big system. But when something happens to you, there's no one to fall back to. There's no one to rely on. Self-sufficiency should be a community-level uh, concept. We should be striving for a given level of self-sufficiency in our lives, but really working more towards self-reliance, which means I have a lot of things I provide for myself. I have a lot of things that I get by being a productive member of society and, and exchanging with others. And if that falls apart, I can make it for a time on my own until we can get things going back together. Self-sufficiency should be at a community level, because there's 50 families involved in this community. 
we can actually be self-sufficient a lot more. And we can exchange with each other. That's what local food growing is all about. That's how that process happens. Now I'm going to tell you a story as I get ready to finish up here. You might think I've totally gone off the deep end when I tell you the beginning of this. But in five minutes, you'll agree with me that this is what happened because if you check it out, you'll find out that everything I'm about to tell you is fact. <clears throat> Modern agriculture and the concept of growing large crops in huge fields and then having it transported over long distances through a wholesale multi-tier distribution marketplace that we have today paired with the monoculture, which is giant field of nothing but corn, giant field of nothing but wheat. Those things together are what created the Federal Reserve System. And right now, if you've never heard this before, you're going, what the hell was in this guy's cereal today? He must be nuts. Nope. Let me tell you how this happened. The way that they got a Federal Reserve System in place, a fiat currency in place, was through what were considered to be shortages in money, money shortages. And this was all around agriculture. You have to understand that over 80% of the people in the United States were either directly or indirectly connected to agriculture, one level off at best. Most people were farmers, ranchers, uh, cattlemen, dairy farmers, you know, you name it. They were close to the earth. And they had to plant every year. And as we moved more and more toward a massive monoculture planting, where a guy was planting 80 acres and started to use more and more technology to do that, it came to a point where people really stopped kind of saving seed and they started to use chemicals and, and, and things like that, and fertilizers. And what would happen is, in the beginning of the year, this is going about from 1880 forward, especially when slave labor came out of the equation in the South, where they would have this huge expense to plant their crops. So the farmers would go out and borrow money. And they would borrow like crazy, and then they would plant their crops. And they would basically sit on that money, because it would be an inventory, in seed. And then when the harvest came, when they sold it, they would return the currency to circulation when they sold and made a profit and began doing their spending. And this happened over and over and over again. Well, you get a bad year, and the currency would just appear to vanish. And at times, they would say, the banks would just say, we'd love to give you money. We're out of money. We don't have any money. What do you mean you don't have any money? You're a bank. Well, we have money, but we have so much in holdings, we can only loan so much out, and we're at our limit, we can't loan any more money, and until the harvest comes, and until the money starts flowing again, we have to, we have to lock it up, sit on it. Well, that only happened when people stopped buying locally. That only happened when things started getting... Now, look, there is more behind the Federal Reserve than that. But when you hear anybody defend our current monetary system, what they'll usually say is, yeah, well, what happens when somebody gets all the money and sits on it and locks up the market? Without a way to bring fresh capital into the market, i.e. printing more money, you end up in, in a stagnated economy. It can't grow, it can't function, it can't move. Credit doesn't flow between businesses, there's no lending, there's no growth. You can't have that. Well, that was the, that was the thing that made it happen that way. And, there, and it wasn't as bad as they ever painted it, but that's what got the blame. Now, you go look that up. Go do some research about cash shortages 
due to agriculture from around 1880 to 1910. Just go look that up and see what you find out about it. You'll find out everything I'm telling you is true. This is one of the main reasons given for removing the gold standard from the United States and going into a position where a private entity manufactured our currency. For a while, with the gold standard still being paid some lip service, then for a while with it really being paid some weak lip service, and eventually, and most people don't realize this, it was 1975 under Richard Nixon, where the last little inkling of the gold standard was eliminated. 1975. Roosevelt did major damage, but Nixon kicked it into high gear by taking the last piece of it out. But it all goes back to agriculture. It all goes back to people giving away their self-reliance, independence, and self-sufficiency. It all goes back to a time when a farmer grew food so they could be shared in his local community and changing it into farming as a business, as a big business. And the more and more big business farms that took off and the more and more exportation of farm commodities took off, the more and more difficult it became to be the other type of farmer and then the only way to play the game was to go in and start borrowing money for your next year's production. Think about that. And as we moved forward out of that, after the Federal Reserve was in place, it was used all through the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. The more, mecha the me more uh, mechanization that came into farming, World War I ended, they took all those wonderful nerve agent chemicals and figured out how to alter them and turn them into pesticides. They figured out how to create fertilizers. And the more that came, the more you needed to buy, and the more you needed to borrow, and the more that cycle was built up. Till today, the Federal Reserve has no need of agriculture. They've grown beyond that. Now we have computers that can fabricate money. They don't even have to print it anymore. But it was the thing that it was weaned on as a baby that helped to become what it is. That's why. That's why I opened up. But it's why I, I kind of opened up with the concept of you pay in advance. And I said that by the time I got to the end of the show today, you'd see why that's an advantage, how it takes things back. What it does is it takes that small farmer, that two or three man operation or one man operation, and takes away the need to go into debt to produce. It allows you to share his risk. Now, here's the, here's the key. Here's the key. This is the great lie. The great lie is the greedy person that looks at this and goes, why should I share his risk? No, I'll just go to Walmart and buy my food because you're sharing his risk right now. See, you're sharing the risk of every farmer in the world right now. You just don't know the name and the face of the people you're sharing the risk with. When production goes down, food prices go up. You pay more. When production is high, food prices go down, you pay less. You're already doing it. You're already doing it every day with every bit of food that you ever buy. You've just lost all connection to the person that's made it possible for you to sit down and eat a great big salad tonight. Eat a couple fried eggs and some bacon in the morning. The CSA puts that back in your control. It's about having control. When you are a shareholder in a CSA, you have control. Maybe only a piece, but you probably know all the other people that have control too. Because when you go to pick your stuff up, they're there too. 
Imagine the, the, the community that could be developed around CSAs if we start building more and more of them. And here's the thing. There's so many people that need to eat, and there's such a deficiency in food, we can't have too many of them right now. It's not like if you run a CSA, you should be really concerned that another CSA is going to come up and compete with you. That should be the last thing on your mind. In fact, the more of them, the better. You know, until we get to every other yard has a greenhouse in it, and that ain't going to happen anytime soon. There's plenty of market out there. That's why I think there's maybe another, there's a piece of this puzzle missing, I think. I think there is a whole industry to be built up around, I would call it a CSA rep. And they should always be independent, and there should never be a business that employs CSA reps. You know, like sales reps or anything like that. Now, every CSA rep, if anybody ever does this, should be an independent person. Maybe a, a husband and wife team. That's about as big as it should get. And what that would be is a gifted marketing and salesperson that would simply go out and find like a group, let's say 10 or 20 CSAs in their neighborhood or in their region, and go out and find customers for them and get maybe 5% of the profit or something like that, or 10% of the profit, so that the farmer can just grow, because most farmers can't market, and so the marketer could just market. And I think that would fuel the growth of these things. If you knew that when you were starting one up, you had a guy that could come in and go, look, I can get you 10 customers. Jeez, that's child's play. I want to get you those 10 customers as quickly as possible so you can grow your operation to 30 or 40, and I can make some real money. And there's nothing wrong with profit. Anybody that condemns profit is an idiot. Money is the equalizer of humanity, folks. Money is humanity's equalizer. Those of you who have not read Atlas Shrugged need to read Atlas Shrugged. Just to learn the concepts of money and how money is the only thing that makes men equal with each other. Because it's the only thing that prevents the strong from simply taking from the weak. Because that's what happens in a world without money. In a world without barter. There is no way for you to then take your efforts and somehow have somebody have to give you equal status with it. But maybe that's a little bit too deep for today. But there's nothing wrong with profit. And if we can make CSAs profitable, we'll have more of them. I know somebody's going to email me today. I looked for a CSA. I couldn't find one. Well... Maybe that's because there aren't any in your area yet. Maybe it's because nobody that's growing in your area right now thinks that they can make a living with it. Maybe that's an opportunity for you. I don't know. But that's, you know, people do things when they're profitable. And when they're not profitable, they don't do them. So you want more CSAs who need more CSA customers. And with that, I think I'm going to wrap up today. I wanted to take just kind of a new look at this concept. I wanted to expose people to it. And I want you to understand what it's really all about. And I want some of you out there to think, hey, I could do this. And I want you to realize with things like permaculture, aquaponics, greenhouse growing, it could be done in a small and slowly scaled up uh, type of situation. I think greenhouses and aquaponics are the two that have the most potential for long-term uh, exploitation in this new niche market. Especially the green, you know, even with aquaponics, you need the greenhouse to go with it. Because we live in a temperate climate, and even in places like I live in Texas, where last week I was outside shorts and a t-shirt, don't be angry at me, I was. You know, it's been in the 40s and rainy and freezing at night for the past couple days. Well, it doesn't matter that it's nice out some parts of this time of the year. All it takes is one freeze to kill everything. 
But by using climate-controlled situations like a greenhouse with passive solar gain, maybe bringing in some supplemental heating just for the most critical times of the, uh, of the evening and things like that, you can take and extend that growing season throughout the year. There's so much potential here. So I want you to examine it. Examine it if you, if you have kind of that entrepreneurial flair. Maybe it's the business for you. If you uh, financially can afford to support one, go support one. If nothing else, go out and meet people and learn about them. I think there's a tremendous sense of community that can be built around, you know, shockingly, community-supported agriculture. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I hope it's made you take a new look at a subject you've probably heard about but maybe didn't know that much about. And uh, I'll be back on Monday with another show. Uh, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life when times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent.